18. We're done with Judges. Those of you, well, welcome back, college students. I'm sorry, but we finished Judges without you. I know, I know. We just, I was tempted. I was like, do we wait? Do we not wait? But if I waited, I'd have to think of something else. So we just went ahead and I'm sorry we did. Uh, But we are going to embark on Romans in February. So I'm saying it enough times in advance so that I make sure I've said it. So now I know I have to be committed to doing it. I told you, for me, Romans is the Mount Everest of the Bible. So it's with fear and trembling that I actually approach that text. So right now, what are we going to do? We're going to do John 17. I'm doing a conference uh, in Colorado this summer, and there needs to be six sermons from John 17. So I am preparing for that and preparing for us as we look at this particular passage. Uh, We'll probably do three sermons, uh, and then maybe we're going to get into uh, Romans, and then we'll take a break somewhere in the middle of the spring as well to wrap it up, okay? So here's the deal. If you mention need in a prayer in the church, everyone in the church feels what? Guilty and bored at the same time, right? I mean, you talk about prayer in the church and everyone starts getting a little, ah, right? You feel guilt and you feel like bored though at the same time. But what happens if you talk about prayer with your unbelieving neighbor? You ever notice what happens then? Well, a trip to India for a three-month meditation retreat might be talked about. Or someone might bring up transcendental meditation and and how to learn that and grow in those realities like Rupert Murdoch tweeted recently. Flannery O'Connor was a famous Southern writer and at 21 years of age, she was studying in Iowa and she wanted to deepen her prayer life, all right? Uh, In 1946, she began keeping uh, a prayer journal. And this is an ancient practice that she started doing. And you know what it was? She wanted to express her feelings to the Lord. She wanted to identify them, find her voice in the scriptures, give them to God, but then not just process, I mean, not just present her feelings. She wanted to process them brutally, honestly before the Lord. And that's an ancient practice. That's an ancient path. It's praying your feelings, not stuffing them, and not just surrendering to them, but praying them. But then going further, though, and doing it in God's presence in a brutally honest way, processing what's going on in your soul and in your heart. And that is as old as the Bible and the Psalms, right? Here's an example of her praying her feelings. I want very much to succeed in the world with what I want to do. I am so discouraged about my work. Mediocrity is a hard word to apply to oneself, yet it is impossible not to throw it at myself. I have nothing to be proud of in myself. I am stupid, quite as stupid as the people I ridicule. (laughs) I love that last line. Now listen to her as she processes her feelings. You ready? Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that myself shadow will grow so large that it will block out the whole moon and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I'm in the way. End quote. At the end of one of her entries, she simply calls out and says, can't anyone teach me how to pray? 
millions of people around the world are asking that same question. Can't anyone teach me how to pray? Now in the church, we think that that's like normal. But that question is being asked outside the church just as loudly as it's being answered inside the church because you and I are made for a relationship with God. So you were made and designed and formed and fabricated and ordered as a human being to pray. Why can't anyone show me how to pray? We are about to look at the third recorded prayer of Jesus in the book of John. His third recorded prayer, his last recorded prayer. Now for many of us, this should be comforting because Jesus only prayed three times in all the Bible in all his life, right? (laughs) Who said that? Brother. All right, this is the longest prayer. And it's a highly unusual prayer because this is what I want you to think about it in John 17. Please think hard about this. We get to listen in on intra-Trinitarian communication. That, that is so rare. I mean, everything in creation and everything that you see and everything in the scriptures and everything in redemption is the overflow, the effect, the result of intra-Trinitarian communication and fellowship and conversation. No one gets to go into the Trinity and see what's going on in the Godhead. Everything that we see and touch and live by in this world's realm is the aftershocks of what happens inside the Trinity. So in John 17, you and I get to listen in on conversations between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Enjoy the ride. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now, whoever has my Bible, it would be helpful if I had it. Can I have a Bible? Thank you, sweetie. Great. It's a little embarrassing. All right, here we go. John 17, we're going to look at 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Oh God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. And Lord, we come to you with empty hands knowing that we are needy and empty and at the same time, we come to you with full hands. We come to you with the gospel. We come to you with your word. Be faithful to your word to us this morning and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what'd you think? I mean, is that what you imagined a conversation in the Trinity would be like between God the Father and God the Son? Did you think it would be like this? 
Why are we spending some time looking at Jesus' prayer in John 17? Why would we do this? I hope that we're all getting more and more as we read the Bible. When we're coming here, we're recognizing that the Bible has an intent, that the Bible is actually an uncaged lion, that the Bible is living and active. And when you open the scriptures, whether you're doing so in your private devotions or whether you're doing so together corporately in our corporate devotion, God is doing something in the scriptures. We're not coming to a lecture. We're not dissecting a frog and solving a calculus problem. Uh, We are coming to a word that releases life and power when you open it. So you gotta ask yourself, we come to John 17, what's the intent? What's this word, this passage seeking to do, seeking to accomplish. The answer is in verse three. We're given it right there. Look at it. It's the central idea of the whole prayer. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus' prayer, John 17, is seeking to give you God. And Jesus says, and that's eternal life. And it's not a, a quantitative life that he's talking about, temporal. He's talking about an, a whole realm of existence called supra-life, ultra-life, life in its highest potency, paradise. I first heard this story when I was in college. It impacted me so deeply, I think every five years I say it, either to myself or to a group of people. Um, They were best of friends in the 1800s, England. After college, they separated, went their own ways because each was going to pursue now their dreams and their call in life. One went to the theater where he excelled. I mean, he became an instant success, and he became an instant success in a culture that loves the theater the way we love our movies. So think of a movie star. He became the Brad Pitt of England. The other became a missionary and he was called to reach the unreached regions of Africa. 20 years later, they had a reunion because the missionary was back in England because of health issues. And the, the theater friend was now a household name in all of England. As famous as the greatest superstar in Hollywood today. Seeking to honor his friend being back from the mission field, he brought him to the theater and he placed him on the first row and then he opened up the Bible and he started reading the 23rd Psalm to him. Looking at him, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. As he spoke, it was literally like he was a shepherd leading the whole hall in superior eloquence, superior emotional impact, um, in diction and punctuation and pitch and pace and punch and pause. Perfect. Everyone was hanging on the edge of their seats. When he got done, the place just stood up as one and for five minutes, (laughs) loud ovation. 
And then to the surprise of everyone in the whole hall, most of all, the man on the front row, his friend said, would you do us the honor and recite the 23rd Psalm? The missionary began. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Verbal power was released upon the whole hall. When he was done, it was quiet. Not even the crickets chirped. People were visibly and deeply moved. There was a reporter there, and later that night, the reporter goes up to the theater friend and says, ah, I mean, there's only one word to describe what you did, and it was absolute perfection. Perfection. I mean, you led people in the palm of your hand. And they were on the edge of their seat, and they erupted when you were done. He said, but this friend of yours, who's not even a good communicator, when he spoke, people were cut to the heart. And the whole hall went silent. I just got one question for you. What's the difference? And the theater friend said, because he knows the shepherd. God's intent for you in this passage is to know the shepherd. The whole purpose of this high priestly prayer, as it's called, is to know the shepherd. This whole prayer is unleashing one single driving power to know the shepherd. So we're going to spend some weeks in it knowing the shepherd. Uh, Today, we're going to look at how do we do this. I mean, how do you know the shepherd? How does that happen? We're going to answer it. And then we're going to experience it. And if anyone here is afraid of experience, I'm sorry. It's the way we roll around here. I can't imagine not preaching like I mean it and feel it. If I ever get to that point, please pull me aside and tell me it's time to go into coaching or something. Stock market, whatever. I need to do something. Can't be a doctor because I'm really too old now. Take too long. How do you know the shepherd? That's the question. How do you know the shepherd? I'm going to give you the answer and it's going to freak you out, but hang in there, okay? The word that I'm actually going to use is a word used by those, many of you, you're going to know who the person is. Long in our tradition. Here it is. The way you know the shepherd is you've got to become an intelligent mystic. We have to become intelligent mystics. All of Christendom 
from the history of the church, from when Jesus started the church, has been divided into two camps. And these two camps have existed in the past, these two camps exist in the present, and these two camps will exist till Jesus comes back again. Camp number one, the doctrinalists, the truth experts. How do you know God? They will tell you, this group will tell you, the way you know God is through objective truth, it's through doctrine, it's through theology, it's through getting it right. It's through the life of the mind. It's through propositions. The other camp is camp number two, the mystics, the experience experts. They will tell you that knowing God is about spiritual experience, contemplative spirituality, spiritual disciplines. It's about communion and encountering God. It's about getting it felt. It's the life of the heart. These two camps do not like each other. These two camps do not trust each other. And what's fascinating, because I've been in both camps, I have participated in both camps. I have now seen, I don't know, 20, 25, something around that, years of ministry, New England, here. I've seen them all. You know what's fascinating to me? This is me. It's fascinating to me that each of these camps can be divided mostly according to personality. Now that will roll your hair back. Personality bents and personality inclinations tend to gravitate to one camp or the other. I want you to find the word no in verse three. Find it, put your finger on it, you got your Bible, your electronic device, whatever it is. In the original language, that word no means both camps are right. No means to be a doctrinalist. And no means to be a mystic. To know means to be both clear to the mind and real to the heart. It means, as a Puritan would say, light in your understanding and heat in your heart. Truth in your thoughts and life in your feelings. An intelligent mystic is what knowing God is all about. Now, even those in my own spiritual theological heritage say this. And my heritage is Luther, Calvin, John Owen, an 18th century theologian who was called the giant of the Puritans in all of England, and Jonathan Edwards, pastor, theologian, who most historians and anyone that has a sense of common sense will say the greatest pastor theologian ever produced on American soil. They say it's both. Not one camp or the other. It's never an either or. It's both. An intelligent mystic. John Owen. Anybody read John Owen? If you read John Owen, you know he's very clear. He's very intelligent. He's smarter than all of us put together. He writes on issues of the Christian life and the gospel and the Christian life on dominion of sin. A whole book this big on dominion of sin. So he has point one, point two, forget three point outlines. He has 50 point outlines. And those 50 main points all have 100 sub points underneath them. Incredibly clear to the mind. He preached a sermon 
on the gospel and he lays out the wonder of the doctrinal theological clarity of the gospel, intelligent. And then he says this, quote, get an experience of the power of the gospel in your life. Get it upon your heart, get it upon your mind, or your profession is nothing. The one who coined intelligent mystic, you know who that is? A guy named John Murray. He's a Scottish theologian. He's from Scotland. Uh, he's a former systematic theology professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. No one will accuse that seminary of being an exper- a mystic seminary. Nobody will do that. He says, it is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people and his people commune with him in conscious, reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic assent, doctrinal affirmation only. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of Christianity. End quote. To know God, you must become an intelligent mystic. And guess what? Jesus is praying you become one. So what does it look like to be an intelligent mystic in John 1 through 5, 17, 1 through 5? What does it look like? Well, notice there's a lot of glorifying going. What I'm going to be asking you to do right now is I'm asking you to put the intelligent part on. We've got to be intelligent. We've got to be clear in our mind. We've got to have clarity in our understanding because what is clear in the mind and what is clear and clear there is what is going to become real in your heart. Edward said, Christian knowledge is stuffing as much clarity in your mind so the Holy Spirit breathes life into your heart. Another illustration would be like this. If we were to take a, um, a fireplace, which probably many of us will use for the first time this year, these past two weeks, right? And your heart, your soul is an empty, cold, charcoal, dark fireplace. That's your soul, that's my soul. That's what you come into the world with. Whether you wanted to, whether you recognize it or not, you have and I have a fireplace soul that's empty. Jonathan Edwards says, you've got to put logs in the fireplace called the gospel, called the scriptures. And now the Holy Spirit has something to burn. And light comes into your soul. Heat comes into your soul. Life fills your soul. But if you have no clarity, no gospel, biblical, theological truth in your fireplace, there's nothing to burn. Okay, so here's the intelligent part. You've got to follow the connections with me. Once you go to verse 4, get out your Bible, look at verse 4. Jesus' perfect life of obedience. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All right, so what's the work? 
Jesus has been given a work, and the work is a perfect life. It's a work of perfect obedience to God. It's a life of being a perfect human being. And he is saying, I did that work. I finished that work. I completed that work. And it glorified you. We get down to Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. Again, we're making connections here. Verse one, the hour has come. This is emphasizing Jesus' death. But again, Jesus' events called his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation are all links on a chain that are inseparable. They're distinct links. They're gospel events. They're historical realities that are each distinct and powerful in their own unique way, but they are all connected and inseparable from the other. So when he says the hour has come, he's emphasizing the death. But connected to the death is the perfect life, the resurrection, and the exaltation, okay? So then when you get to verse five, and now Father, or in verse one, it also says glorify your son. Now that's emphasizing what? His resurrection and his exaltation, but it includes his death and his perfect life. They're all linked together. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you, before with you, before the world existed. Now, I want you to think about this because we did this in the first service. Um, Jesus is going back at this moment. He's anticipating going back to be with the Father in undiluted glory. When Jesus became a man, You've got to picture the second person in the Trinity, eternal God, pre-existent son of God, clothed in splendor and majesty, the one that was actually the agent through which God spoke the world to be. He added humanity to him. And in adding humanity to him, there was a sense of veiling that took place. In order to become a human being, 100% human being, there was a veiling addition. There's no subtraction here. Adding humanity did not subtract from the glory of his divinity. It did not, not subtract from the glory of who he is and what he is about to accomplish. What it did do, though, is that there was a veiling process because adding humanity did that. What he's talking about in this verse is he's about to go back to the way things used to be, but he's going back in a way in which glory is going to be given to him and his humanity is always gonna be there forever and ever and ever. Jesus' humanity never leaves him ever again. When he added it to him, his divine nature, it's permanent. Because he's the perfect man for you. He's gonna be crowned and he was crowned king of the kingdom of God, the way Adam was supposed to be and the way you and I are supposed to be and because of Jesus, we now will be. That's what it means to be an heir of Jesus, the king, right? All this together is Jesus' redemptive work and I want you to see how Jesus' redemptive work glorifies God. Do you see the connection in verse one? That the son of God may glorify you. Verse four, I glorified you on earth. How? By finishing the work you gave me to do, right? To glorify something means to what? If you're gonna glorify something, you're gonna glorify someone. Some of you are gonna glorify the cowboys today. Some of you are going to condemn them today. There are gonna be a lot of people glorifying the cowboys in a stadium just up the road. What are they doing? What do you do when you glorify um, an 
an athletic achievement or a musical performance. What are you doing? You're making much of it. You're making much of whatever or whoever it is that you're talking about and whatever or whoever it is what they did. Who they are and what they do is made much of. That's what it means to glorify someone. It's to make them famous. It's to make them known. The chief end, the goal of Jesus' redemptive work is to make God known, to make God famous to you. He is making intelligent mystics. That's the ultimate goal. God's glory and your knowing it as an intelligent mystic. This is eternal life. Jesus, you're God. Um, you came from God. Just trying to think of an interview like today's world. You've come from eternity. You're the glory of God himself. And you're about ready to go back. What's life all about? What's the purpose of what you're doing? Why are you doing it? To give you God. To make you know there's only one true God and Jesus Christ whom he's sent. This is eternal life. So God the Son's and God the Father's intra-Trinitarian communication here in John 17 is ultimately about you knowing them. So when Jesus is obeying perfectly for you and he's living a life of a perfect human being and he is keeping the law perfectly and he is loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and he is loving his neighbor as himself and he never despised and never didn't forgive. He was love incarnate, righteous in everything he did, not just in his outward acts of behavioral obedience, but he had a heart that never stopped doing everything for the glory of God and a love for God. While he was perfectly obeying for you, he was doing that to bring you and God together. When he was on the cross and he was being separated and his relationship with God was being wrecked to pieces, he was doing that to bring you and God together. And then when he rose from the dead and death, he shook off like a, like a garment and triumphantly came out like a king and conquered it all. He was doing it to bring you and God together. And then when he was glorified, and that means that he became the crowned king over all God's kingdom, he was doing it to bring you and God together. John Knox was mentored by John Calvin. If you know our family, you'll know the order of our kids, our boys. Do you know that 
Some folks accuse, some, some folks accuse uh, some of the Protestant Reformation folks as not being missionary minded. And I, that just makes my stomach turn. Do you know that, that Calvin had a group of men that he was training and mentoring in the gospel and he knew and they knew when they left him in Geneva, they would probably be murdered for their faith. One of them was John Knox. He's called the Fiery Knox. And he left to be a part of taking the gospel to the English-speaking world. Well, that is if you count Scottish English-speaking. I don't know. Dave, you've got a son-in-law, man, that's Scottish. What do you say? Yeah, I don't think it's English. I can't understand a word they say. Well, later in life, Knox knew he was dying. And he asked his beloved wife, he said, Sweetie, will you read John 17 to me? And as she was reading John 17, um, Jesus took him home. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Start knowing him now. Become an intelligent mystic. 